into every life, a little sunshine must fall. <laughs> now, I know I depressed some of you <laughs> recently <laughs> about talking about uh, the nature of the world. <clears throat> and then we concluded by saying, nothing has to go right today because all I want is the peace of God. But it's also true that nothing has to go wrong today. Those are both equally true. And they are equally upsetting. <laughs> Just notice how upsetting it is if everything goes right. If everything goes just exactly the way you want it to, don't think that you've done anything to bring that about. <laughs> just as everything goes wrong, don't try to read great meaning into it. But it's true, and it's one of the great ironies, that we want everything to go our way, but the minute everything starts going our way, we are in absolute panic. The other shoe must fall. So, you heard in the reading this morning that uh, we need to reverse our upside-down perception, those of you who are listening to the reading. <laughs> so, what better means of reversing our upside-down perception than a gravitational guidance system? Do you know the gravitational guiding system? The little machine that turns you upside down? You haven't gotten the little brochure or seen the little ads or been over to the mall and seen the machine on sale? Well, it's this little platform. You get onto it, and it flips you upside down. I see you're taking me seriously. There, <laughs> there really is such a machine, but, of course, it doesn't reverse your perception. However, it does help your back, and so... <laughs> There I was uh, trying one out that a friend lent me. Uh, said it had done great wonders for me. Actually, it was a couple, and they're both writers. And uh, so they would write and write and then get on the machine and flip themselves upside down. And so you've got to try this. So I did. And I thought, well, I probably should try it for about 10 days. Maybe in a, at the end of about 10 days, I would know whether or not it was actually doing me any good. After trying it for about two days, I had the feeling, I had the knowing, I had the what. I saw clearly there was a simple perception. There was a simple perception. This machine definitely is helping me, and the sale is probably not still on. When they lent us the sale... <laughs> <laughs> when they lent us the machine, they said, incidentally, this machine's on sale. It's been on sale quite a while, so if you want one, you better hurry over there. Well, the machine said in our... Uh, well, actually, the machine, first of all, went over to some friends, some neighbor's house. They used it for several days. Then it came over to our house. It sat there for two or three days, and it was not used. Then I used it for a couple of days. By now, I was sure the sale was over. Um, but I thought, well, it hasn't been 10 days. It's only been two. But this machine, I think, definitely will help me. So 
I'll call over there on the off chance that it's still on sale. Called over there. It's the last day. This is the last day of the sale. <laughs> so I went over to uh, Oshman's. Oshman's the one that had it on sale. Um, and uh, I looked at the machine and I said, do you have to assemble this? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> yeah, I see, uh-huh. And, uh, <laughs> and how much off is it on sale? Well, it was actually half of what it usually costs. Well, that seemed great. And I said, well, okay. So I wrote out my little check, went around back to pick it up, rang the bell, rang the bell again, walked up and down the aisles, rang the bell again, and so forth. This was a great amusement to John. Always take a five-year-old with you. <laughs> they, will see, they will see happiness in everything. And the, <laughs> the fact that we had wander up and down these halls looking for the door to the back of Oshman's, go out and ring the Oshman buzzer one more time, he thought this was just the greatest thing that ever happened. <clears throat> it was sort of like going into the house of monsters or something, you know. Because <laughs> at any moment, something would come out the door, but you didn't know which door. So finally, someone came out and he said, did so-and-so sell you this machine? I, I said, I don't know. This is the guy up there in front. He said, we don't have any more machines. He said, if you want one, you'll have to buy the demonstrator. The demonstrator? I said, the demonstrator's already assembled. <laughs> <laughs> but I, and then I got real serious. The demonstrator? Uh... <laughs> Well, you would give me a little more off, wouldn't you? <laughs> so I'll have to talk to the boss. He went back and talked to the boss. The boss says you can have an additional 10% off. <clears throat> and he carried it out to my car and put it in. <laughs> Everything went right. <laughs> and I had to remind myself I hadn't done anything. <laughs> You see, in the world, there are these tides. Everything goes our way, and everything goes against us. And then there are sort of in-between places in which we can't decide which is happening. <laughs> so it is, it's not true, strictly speaking, it's not true that the world doesn't work. It does work. Every once in a while, it just works and scares the pants off of you. <laughs> so what is the solution? It isn't buying a machine that puts you upside down. The solution is that if the tides going against you scares you, and if they're going for you scares you, you get out of the water. That's the only solution. But we don't have to get out of the water in one jump. It's difficult to get out of the water in one jump. You walk slowly toward the shore. And that's all we do on a spiritual path. We realize that it's upsetting if everything goes our way. The singles us out. People get jealous. Seems to break friendships apart and so forth, even though it's very exciting. And then when they go against us, we already know that this isn't nice. And so we say, I think I'll get out of the tides. I'll get out of the water. And so we start a very gentle walk toward the shore. 
That was the answer to the first question. There were several little questions, and this is going to be a question and answer, period. So let me do with, deal with a couple of other questions that came up, and then those of you who would like to uh, make a comment or ask a question will have an opportunity to do so. Yes, but the world is so beautiful, is another question. And so maybe as I was describing the world to you, you had this, you thought of all these wonderful things, like little cuddly bunnies. And, and oh, we, we found the most magnificent uh, green and gold speckled um, a grasshopper. I found it and uh, took it down to John. He was out collecting toys from the storehouse, which he loves to do. We take the toys down there. <laughs> he goes down, <laughs> collects, collects them, and brings them back. <laughs> this came about because one of the uh, realtors that had gone through our house had wondered if we had a toy store and were we in violation of the Tunnel Road uh, <laughs> uh, zoning ordinances. Um, but anyway, I took the little grasshopper down there and showed it to him. And it was indeed a beautiful little grasshopper. And probably you thought of a hundred things like that. Yes, there are two worlds. There is what might be called the first world. The world made by you. The world made by the collective ego. And then there is a second world. And so there are two lessons in A Course in Miracles. The world I see holds nothing that I want. But there is a lesson that follows it that tells us that beyond this world, there is a world that indeed you do want. Now, where are those worlds? They are in the same place. And so... All of you have experienced looking back on the most miserable period in your life and seeing how indeed it blessed you. Now, this can be very confusing to go around telling people when they're in the middle of a tragedy that it's really a blessing. And that's actually not accurate. There is the tragedy, and the tragedy itself is not a blessing. The blessing is added. It's an overlay. It's the counterpart. It's the answer to the world. So for everything that we see in the world, there is a very gentle counterpart, our answer, our blessing. There is, you could say, another way of interpreting it. That's another way of saying the same way. You can look at anything two different ways. So as uh, Shakespeare ironically had Hamlet say, Nothing, there is nothing, either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. And so with our thinking, we can do this little gestalt thing where the two faces turn into two pitchers of water or something. Maybe you all have done it. remember doing that little experiment in Psychology 101. You, see, you look at the picture and then suddenly you see something entirely different. And it switches. Before it looked like a face, now it looks like something else. 
Notice that you cannot see both things at once. You can switch back and forth, but you can't see both things at once. It is either two pitchers of water or it is two faces. But it's not both at the same time. And so we have that choice in the world. What we don't realize is that we've already flipped a few things in the world. But notice that different people have flipped different things. So thanks to John, I just love insects now. My little five-year-old boy, has, he just gets so excited about any insect whatsoever that I've begun to look at insects and they have flipped for me. And, and the insects that uh, inhabit our house have been so grateful for this change in me. <laughs> I started to drink a glass of... Uh, well, you don't care what it was, do you? Uh, it's this little drink that I have sometimes. It's, it's a good drink, people. It's a healthy drink. It's, we're not talking here about one of the sins. Uh, and there was this quite large spider in it, plus his considerable attempts in the form of abandoned webs to get out of the glass, do you see? Well, I would have been horrified in the old days about this thinking that a second, you know, if I had not looked down, I would have swallowed a very large spider and his many homes. <laughs> but I, I didn't. Now that I think about it, this just occurred to me. I didn't do that. I really saw that this was a quite lovely little spider and it had this, uh, this was not a, a black widow, but it did have a little white thing down its back that was quite, quite intricate. So it looked sort of like a zebra. It had very long, handsome legs. <laughs> and I saw all this, and I wouldn't have seen it before. And so you know people for whom children have flipped. They now see them as little lights, or at least children of certain ages. Maybe it's only adolescents, but they love adolescence. They love working with adolescents. They immediately see any adolescent as a friend. They can talk to adolescents. They feel a oneness with adolescents. Maybe they don't feel a oneness with a 10-year-old. Or maybe it's just 10-year-olds, but not babies. Some people, it's just babies. You know people for whom those who are dying have flipped. Well, that's, that doesn't, we shouldn't say that. No. <laughs> you know what I mean, don't you? And so to sit by the bed of someone who's dying is indeed a true religious experience. Or just the elderly. You know people who love the elderly. Or you know people who love wilderness. David Secord is going into the wilderness. I talked to a woman last week who can meditate while walking among trees for miles and miles. That's when she can get close to God. There are even people for whom illness has flipped. And when they are very, very sick, they can turn to God. That's why we should never judge anyone for being sick. We should never say it is a mistake. We do not know whether anything is a mistake. So do not be afraid to love the world. 
There is a real world. Beyond this world is a world you want. That is the first step, to see the real world. So the first step is to see this world as innocent. And when you see anything in this world as innocent, you will be flooded with love for it, even spiders in your glass. Even the new bank building in downtown, you will be flooded with love. I know this seems impossible. <laughs> As a matter of fact, that did happen to me. I went and talked to a friend of mine in the new bank building. And he told me this story about how the bank building had come to look the way it does. And after hearing the story and knowing my friend so well, it flipped for me. I now understood why there were windows where they were and why they weren't where they weren't and why the corners were and so forth. Because he told me the whole history of it, how each thing had happened. It wasn't at all what I had thought. And so the, the building now has flipped for me. So how do we awaken? How do we come to, to know God? How do we go home? It's very simple. We see the world as innocent. And when we have come to not fear innocence, not fear any behavior, any word, any other church, any other organization, any other book, any other way, any other face, any other color, any other activity, any other country, any other politician, any other hairstyle, when there is nothing that we are afraid of to see as innocent, we will no longer fear a place where there is only innocence. And at that moment, we will awaken to what has been called heaven because we will not fear innocence anywhere. And so, in a sense, we turn the world into heaven. And that's all spiritual path is. So do not be afraid to love the world because when you love the world, you see beyond it to the blessing, to the counterpart, to the innocence. And so people are indeed innocent, aren't they? In their hearts, they are innocent. The little watch that's going on <laughs> here in the front row over and over again is innocent. <laughs> and magically, it stopped as soon as I said <laughs> Having great powers. This man has powers. I didn't I tell you? <clears throat> So that was another question. Another question was, or he could have caught, he could have counted the number of rings and timed his statement. <laughs> so that see, we can interpret these things many ways. Um, don't play around, I said, don't play around with. This is the way it was interpreted by someone here, what I said. Don't play around with ego thoughts because they can drag you down and there is no limit to how far down you can go. There is no limit to how many thousands of years you can walk backwards. This is, in fact, true. This is true. 
But this seemed to be a contradiction to the person because at the same time, I've said over and over, you must turn and look at these thoughts. That is not a contradiction because what I was speaking of is idols, ego idols. So we have things that make the world real for us. We have things for which we would trade everything. Everything meaning God, the love of God, our oneness with each other, a place where only innocence is seen, a day that never ends, a day in which we experience the peace of God. We would trade everything for this idol, this lesson we personally were taught in our formative years, the one thing that makes the world valuable. That is what you don't wish to play around with once you have recognized what your idol or group of idols, it doesn't matter if you have one little uh, catch word for the whole thing or if it comes under several different titles, several, if it's branded in several different ways. So don't get caught up in trying to narrow it down to some single phrase or something. But there is a way, an approach that seems to make the world sing for you and yet there is no love in it. So it's not truly singing. But it seems to make the world real and valuable, and so you stay in the world, stay deeply in the world, or it draws you back into the world over and over again. You get very, very close to God. You experience maybe a morning of peace, and then your idol comes in, and now you are mired back in the world. And it's all collapsed all over you again, but with an added sadness now because you did experience the peace and you know what you have just given up. That's what you don't want to play around with. Once you have seen your idol, don't play around with it any longer in your mind. Play around with it doesn't mean look at it. It means think, wouldn't this be nice? And what might the idol be? Well, there's almost a different idol for every person. In a sense, that's true. But we can talk about categories of idols, and we've done this many times. And we, we know the big fancy ones, like being wiser than other people, or withdrawing into some sort of uh, isolation in the world. Not, not isolation in which we turn to God, but a fearful isolation. We've talked about anger as an idol. We've talked about, of course, wealth and possessions and having this and having that and owning this and owning that. We've talked about recognition and promotion and all that. We've talked even about super health as an idol. We've talked about promiscuity as an idol. Why is that an idol? Well, it's just an idol because it doesn't really matter if we're running after bodies or running after money or running after fame or running after the power that anger seems to give us or running after anything in the world. It doesn't really matter if we have singled anything out in the world and said, ah, this, maybe, every, maybe the rest of it is not worth trading my relationship with God in for. But this is. Now, that doesn't mean that anyone should get in a fight with themselves. 
That doesn't mean that anyone should give up their job because it's paying a great deal of money. Or that they should not take the promotion. Or that they shouldn't do something that will have with it a great deal of recognition. It, of course, means nothing like that. It means that there is no longing. There is no seesaw going on. One minute we turn to God, and the next minute we turn back to this thing. Whatever the thing is. And we always see the absurdity of other people's thing that they're pursuing. Okay, last question, and then we'll... This one comes up almost every single time. It's very difficult, obviously, to understand this. But remember that if you don't understand a simple concept, you don't want to. <clears throat> and this one is about anger. So there is this statement, which is true. To feel angry, but act as if you are not. To feel angry, but act as if you are not, accomplishes nothing. That is a true statement. Why then? But see, what the ego does with that statement is, therefore, I will always act out my anger around everyone. It does not follow that because you feel angry, that merely to not act it out accomplishes nothing. It doesn't follow that you therefore should act it out. It simply means that that alone will do nothing. You must see that you are not angry. That's what you must see. Because at the moment, you think you are angry. And you think this must be honored. That this is you, it's your identity. And that if you're going to be yourself, you must be angry. And that's the way it feels. And so the philosophy that supports that seems very logical to you at that instant. But you also know that every time you have become still, when you've just sat down for a moment and let your mind become still and looked a little deeper, looked in your heart, you see, you are not angry at this person. You love this person. You see them as innocent. But you must do something in order to see that. And acting out the anger is not the thing to do. So it is true that not acting out the anger saves you time, even though it doesn't accomplish anything yet. But it does save you time. Because if you act it out, you get other pe people stirred up. You get other egos involved. You put this problem into other minds, and there's a sense of helplessness and hopelessness. It seems out of your control now. Whereas as long as you keep it inside... It is simpler to handle, but you must handle it because to keep it inside and act as if you are not angry when you are angry truly accomplishes nothing in and of itself. So you cannot stop at that point. And you do not wish that kind of hypocrisy. And you have you're not further along the path. If you are feeling angry but not but not acting it, you've got to stop long enough to look deeper. We have layers of emotions. We have layers of thought. And we have a core. A Course in Miracles puts it this way. The Christ in you is very still. And that you can reach. That at least you can approach if you can't reach it. You can at least sink down toward it. 
by just pausing a second, by just closing your eyes, by just reminding yourself of the truth, by just asking yourself, do I want to condemn this person in my heart? Despite the justification, would, do I want to be a person who condemns other people? Maybe you could put it that way. Or maybe you could just say, do I want the pain that this grievance, this grudge, keeps me in? If you just say you don't want the pain, then perhaps you will look a little deeper. Because in your heart, you are not angry. You are not jealous. You don't lust to know. And so you don't feel like you've got to read everything and see everything and hear every opinion and on and on and on and on and on. So once again, the concept is very, very simple. Do not, Course in Miracles puts it this way, do not allow the body to reflect your decision to attack. <laughs> do not allow the body to reflect your decision to attack. Why? Because it saves you time, but it doesn't, that's not the end. That's the first step. At least you stop the problem from growing. But don't rest there. As soon as you can, get by yourself. Sink deep enough into your heart to see that there's something more to you than anger, than ill will, than wanting to attack, than wanting to make someone else feel guilty, which, of course, in miracles says, is all there is to anger, a desire to make someone else feel guilty. Okay. Um, those of you who have worked hard, you're having difficulties, like we all do. We all have many, many difficulties. And so, if you found something that was helpful you want to share, or if you find, find something that's confusing that you want to uh, want for us to talk about for a moment, this is a good time to do it. Yes? Um, I've noticed that in making choices for peace, and in, um, I've had some confusion about what that is. I have found that I've confused it with um, comfort sometimes. Yes. The most comfortable choice. Sometimes it seemed um, like a passive there's some passivity. So I'm wondering if you could talk about what peace is. Yes, the, the question is, we start out and we try to choose peace. Now in the beginning, there's ego involvement in this, and so we, we realize oftentimes that when we thought we were choosing peace, we look back and realize we weren't choosing peace. And I told you the uh, story of Gail and I going to the... Uh, we, we had a perfectly good car. It was only one year old. And... Uh, but we thought we would go over and look at this other car. We'd heard about it. We didn't need another car. But this was back in the days when we believed in... You see, there are two forms of guidance. One form of guidance is you simply look at your heart and you're at peace. And you act from the peace. Then there's this other kind of guidance in which 
I wonder if I should do so and so. Whenever you find yourself asking, I wonder if I've been told, I wonder if I should be doing that. I wonder what that man. That is coming from the ego every single solitary time, I can tell you. There isn't any question in regard to true guidance. There's just this gentle preference. It doesn't single something out. But we didn't realize that yet. You have to work through these things and finally realize these. Realize it. So, we only had so many minutes to get to this place. And we said, well, we'll just go by. We've got enough time, maybe, just to drop by. So we dropped by, got there in time. And to make a long story short, the uh, the car that we had decided that we would like most, with the color and the upholstery and everything, was not on the lot. But it drove up just as we arrived there. And this was divine guidance. <laughs> and we got ourselves in a financial hole that we have not yet gotten out of. <laughs> to this day, we are still paying on that car. And I, it was very confusing because I felt peaceful. Now I look back and realized I did not feel peaceful. I felt euphoric. (laughs) And I felt important because we had just bought a car months ago from the same dealership. Here we were buying another more expensive car, the latest model. And they said, oh, did the ash crate trays get dirty? And I mean, they brought out everybody. I mean, they, they realized they had nuts on their hand. They were, you know, and you've never seen so many red carpets and uh, hire people coming down and everything else. They had genuine idiots, and they were going to take advantage. This was they're going to milk this for the next ten years. So, there is this feeling of of importance that can pass for peace. There's this sense of euphoria that can pass for peace. So lots of people fall in love, stumble in love, (laughs) and they think that they're in peace. And they can't understand why it turns out to be such a disaster three weeks later. So there is, of course, this process that there's nothing you can do about it. You simply have to keep returning to your heart over and over, and you will gradually begin to weed out counterfeit peace for real peace. And I wish I could give you some magic formula whereby you would always save yourself making these mistakes, but we simply, there is no magic formula because we begin with a confused idea of peace and happiness. We, for example, just take this concept of, of um, getting satisfaction from revenge. Now, all of us at one time believed this, that there was satisfaction in revenge. Now, is there anything more insane than that? But there's an actual sensation that goes along with it. They got their comeuppance. I I remember a guy told me that he heard that so-and-so had died and that this guy had run into his car a week before, and he said, so-and-so God has come up. And he was thought he was satisfied. He thought this was a good thing that the guy died because he had run into his car.
Now, that's insanity. But we start off with this confused idea of what makes us happy. Look how many things you used to think make, made you happy that you no longer, you know they don't make you happy. Just think of all the things that you once thought made you happy and now you realize they never made you happy. There are a lot of people in this audience who are members of AA. That's the way it's said. There's no, of course, membership in AA, but there are a lot of, there are a lot of people in the program here. Now, all of those people at one time thought that it made them happy to get high. It didn't. And then they eventually saw, this isn't making me happy. There was a, uh, I talked to a woman recently who uh, had realized that smoking was hurting her health and therefore it would be a good thing for her personally to let go of this habit. Now, this is not true of everyone. Some people, smoking doesn't seem to hurt. So I'm not promoting not smoking. You see, these things are completely individual. Just as there's some people who can take a few drinks and it doesn't seem to bother them, bother them at all. Uh, so she started praying about this and looking at it. And suddenly she realized that the only time that she started smoking was when she had just been critical of herself. She didn't, hadn't seen this connection. First, she was critical of herself. Then she sat in a particular chair and picked and pulled out a cigarette. And so it was flagellation for her. And yet before, she had assumed that the sensation was making her happy. And it wasn't making her happy. But there was a time in which no one could have convinced her it wasn't. It has to be seen. So the answer to the question is, be very, very patient with yourselves. Yes, it does take a while for us to see what true happiness is and true peace is. But you want to see that because once you see it, you will have the kind of peace that doesn't end, that can't be snatched from you, that doesn't turn into a nightmare over and over again. A peace that's just the first rung on the ladder to peace that will carry you into a peace that you have not experienced anything like in this world and that's what you want so with each little experience of the peace of God you will feel sadder when you go back to the world but you will go back into the world you will react it will scare you you will see what this is leading to and you will jump back in the world and will make you a little sadder each time you it'll make you a little bit more confused you see oh those of you who haven't attended this church what happens if someone asks a question, a short question, and I give a very, very long answer? This is the church tradition. I don't like this tradition. I try to fight it, but everybody says, no, we want very long questions, very long answers to these questions. Well, I just forgot what I was about to say. So we will, we will in fact, go on to the next uh, question. Yes. Freedom? Okay. The question is, talk a little bit about freedom. Oh, uh, I just remembered what I was going to say. <laughs> has to do with freedom. See, she read my mind. You think there's not? All right. Now. Uh, but I, I think what I'll do is talk uh, actually about uh, freedom specifically before we go into this other thing. 
One of the grand misconceptions about going home, about walking home, about following a simple path of forgiveness and peace and love is that it is a narrow path. Now, I realize that the Bible uses that term, at least in the older translations, but notice that there are two definitions of narrow. And the ego's definition of it is cramped, limited options. And so we think when we start on a spiritual path that we have fewer options, that somehow we have to write off MDs, we have to write off surgery, we have to write off prescription drugs, we have to write off, uh, gosh, the number of foods that we have to write off is like we would take the rest of the time to list them. And we have to say things in certain ways and we can't say them other ways. We have to wear, wear more spiritual clothes and we have to have a more spiritual expression on our face and so forth. And we have to grow little spiritual plants in our garden. None of these spider moms, you know. We've got to have carrot tops coming up, not petunias. And I mean, it just gets ridiculous. And so actually... Our path gets narrower and narrower and narrower. And of course we jump off of it. We scream. Ah! <laughs> and just the opposite, of course, is what is offered to us. It doesn't matter what you do. It matters whether or not you do it with kindness and peace and love. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter where you work. It doesn't matter what you put on the morning. It doesn't matter how much you make. It doesn't matter where you part your hair. It doesn't matter what glasses you put. People can go insane trying to pick out the most spiritual shaped glasses. There is no spiritual shaped glasses. There is no right job. There is nothing like that. And so what do you do? The world becomes more and more confusing as you approach home. This is not generally understood. The world will become more confusing you won't have the little rules that you always had to decide things before because you've been sweeping them out as you've been going along. You don't have any rules any longer. And so every time you dive back in the world and try to figure out what you're supposed to do, which we do a thousand times a day, it gets very, very confusing and painful because suddenly there's no way to decide anything anymore. And so then we go back to the only way that makes sense, which is simply to do the thing that's peaceful to do. Not the most peaceful or something like that. Or a list of things that are peaceful and things that aren't peaceful. It's not that, but just you're peaceful. And so you do something in peace and in kindness and gentleness. This is so difficult to learn. And so we, in fact, even in terms of the world, have increased freedom on a spiritual path. The only thing that you will not do on the spiritual path is you will no longer hurt people. Does this mean that you don't gossip? Generally speaking, it means that you don't gossip, but there will be people with whom you will see that it's the kindest thing to just go ahead and participate in the conversation with them. You just don't believe it. That's all. You just don't get your heart in it. You just don't carry it any further. You just don't bait it. But you may have an in-law or something that wants to rail against something and so you nod and say, yes, isn't it true? And so forth. 
And this is a kind thing to do. You see? But true freedom, because uh, Hamlet goes on to say, uh, what is it? Uh, Hamlet goes on to say uh, something like, uh, I could be confined in a nutshell, I could be held in just a nutshell, but would be the king of infinite space were it not for the fact that I had bad dreams. Shakespeare words it a little bit <laughs> more smoothly than that. <laughs> But uh, that's where you find your freedom is. So it looks to people, for example, that Gail and I are withdrawing. I, I use this example only because it's an example that is before you. It is not a better example. You, in fact, know other people who have withdrawn far more than we have. Now, the appearance seems to be that we are withdrawing, that we are doing less. So that we're doing all these groups and going out to the penitentiary and all these workshops and all this stuff. And then we go to the dispensable church and we cut out all the groups and all the stuff. And now we're stepping back from the dispensable church and we're going to go live someplace that seems fairly uh, secluded. We don't know what place that may be. And so if you look at that, that seems narrower and narrower and narrower. Less and less freedom. But in fact, if you could look at our lives, you would see they are just like your life. That what you are doing is instead of the busier kinds of things, instead of the ego part of the helping, you will have less and less ego part in the helping. The movement of the body, the opening and closing of the mouth, and all that stuff. That's the ego part of it. But there is another part, and, and so many of you are finding this. It is what you do mentally while you're counseling someone that helps them, and not what you say. So it is your heart. Do you love this person? Do you see them as innocent? You can say anything, and if you see them as innocent and hold them in light, oftentimes it helps them. Sometimes it doesn't. You don't always know. But you can say the most wonderful concepts, but be judging this person, and it does not help them. And so what Gail and I are doing, I mean, we stop over and over and over now during the day because someone will come to our thought and we will stop and we will sit together and we will surround this person in light and we will speak to the light in them. You know, to his little song, may the pure light within you guide you all the way home. So the pure light within you joins with the pure light in them. The Christ in you joins with the Christ in them. And this strengthens, it, this is not literally accurate to say it this way, but this is the way it feels. <clears throat> that the Christ in you strengthens the Christ in them. That's the feeling. It seems to bolster. It seems to make the good part of them, the sane part of them, the kind part of them, literally grow when you turn your mind kindly to this person. But almost no one here believes that. But you will believe it because you will see the evidence for it so many times that you will cannot help but believe it. You will see that just surrounding someone in light does so much good that you will then say, let us stop everything else and just surround in light. And that, of course, is what Gail and I are doing. We're going to spend more and more time doing that and less and less time doing this. Is that the last thing to do? Oh, no. 
That's not the last thing to do. The last thing to do in this world is to awaken. And there will be no need to sit and close your eyes and surround someone in light. That's the way you can help the most. But Gail and I are not in a position to awake. We couldn't awake right now. We haven't grown far enough to awake. We can't do it. There are people who are very close to it. Probably Muktananda, Muktananda just did it recently. I'm not in a position to know, but I would assume that's what he did. It sounded like it from the description of what he did. He did, he gave the greatest gift to the world that he could give. But I'm sure many of his students or disciples or devotees, or whatever you want to call them, felt deserted by him. Not realizing that instead of being with them part-time, he made the decision to be with them all the time. And so there is this appearance of limits on freedom. But you will see that you are free to do anything. It's just that you won't choose to do some of the things you did before. And so your life does become simpler. But only because that's what makes you happy. we got time for one more comment question. Yeah. I know, yeah. This, uh, the dispensable church, uh, let me repeat the question, uh, that in the lessons uh, there is sometimes more than one concept presented and even more than one phrase that you are asked to use during the day. Sometimes it may be even three or four different ones, uh, but at least one or two. And that this is, and so many of you perhaps are doing the course have found yourself writing out things on little cards, pulling them out, looking at your watch because it says do it when the hour strikes and so forth. And, and this can seem very confusing. Those of you who've listened to the early tapes at the Dispensable Church know that we started doing lessons in those early services. We'd actually do a lesson each Sunday and read a passage from the text. And I stopped that. One of the reasons that I stopped it was that the more I read A Course in Miracles myself, the more I said to myself, I'm not ready for this. <laughs> now we have done, Gail and I have done the lessons over and over and over. We've gone through the whole thing many, many times. And, of course, we realized quite early, just as many of you have, that it's written on many different levels. So it takes people at many different levels. As I've said before, I cannot lead you to God. All I can do, at the most what I can do, is lead you to the truth within you, point you in that direction. But I am in the world, and so there is no way I can lead you to God. I'm not with God in that sense. I'm still in the world. So I can give 
you a particular way of looking in your heart and seeing the truth. And this will suit very well some people, and it will not suit others at all. And it would be a definite mistake for them to listen to my tapes or come to this service. It would be confusing to them because it is not the best path for them. It's not the best way. It's not the best approach. A Course in Miracles, however, itself... Like many other statements of truth, this is not the only statement of truth that has this connection. But A Course in Miracles came from what I call one of the higher teachers. And so there are those who have laid aside their egos, and they are here just to help us. And so... Jesus indeed dictated A Course in Miracles to Helen Shuckman. And so it is as perfect a statement of truth as you can have, although it is not completely perfect, because nothing in the world is. But it is as perfect as it can be, given the fact that it's books and print and concepts and so forth. So when you start reading A Course in Miracles, if that turns out to be the thing that would be most helpful for you personally, and there are many here that it would not be the best, most helpful thing for you to do that, you will begin to feel the presence of the author. Just as when you read my books or anyone else's books, you Immerse yourself in the state of mind I was in when I wrote the book. That's why I am currently rewriting the book that I'm writing, because it had a heavy feel. It had a heavy feel because I realized I was trying to get rid of this burden. I had made the mistake of signing a contract and agreeing to a deadline, which I'd never done before, and suddenly I was overdue, and I had to get this book finished. And so I had written tons of material and the book wasn't finished. It felt heavy. There was lots of lots of good material in it, but it had felt heavy. And so I knew that anyone who picked up this book would enter the heaviness of it, despite the splendidness of the concepts, perhaps. Perhaps not. <laughs> <laughs> and so Gail and I sat down and said, what is our purpose for writing this book? And we saw that it was that we had deep affection for the people who would read it. We get all these letters from people. And we get comments and things. And we have a feel for the people who read my books. And we, we know the people who will read these books. And not, not specifically, but we have a feel for them. We have deep affection for them. We feel that they're part of our family. And indeed they are. There is this sharing that goes on there. And so the book had to be, it had to sing. It had to have lightness and affection. And so, even though the book is overdue, I called my editor, editor and said, I'm going to rewrite it. And fortunately, I've got a great editor, and she said, that's just wonderful. Just take all the time you need. Uh, and so now the book is beginning to sing. And people who read that book, if it's a good book for them, will be able to, that they will feel the presence of mind. 
the, 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 the quality of the mind of mind that I have. But my quality of mind is not perfect. I'm still in the world. There's still a lot of ego. There will still be some ego in that book. But there is no ego in A Course in Miracles. And you will indeed begin to connect with its source as you read it. And that is all you need to do as you do the lessons. So do the best you can with the concepts. I know it tells you to do several things in some of those lessons. Do them at certain times. But do, do, do you notice, though, a few lessons later, it says, of course, it realizes that you haven't done that. <laughs> it's, it lists the things that you haven't been doing and simply points out that there is still a little lack of motivation. <laughs> because indeed, if this was uh, some medicine we had to take so we wouldn't get a heart attack, we would have done it. You see, so it, it just simply means we weren't quite motivated enough, but that you don't criticize yourself. You just take yourself where you are because that's what the Course does. But join hands with the author. Your friend holds your hand as you read those books. You don't have to attend Course in Miracle groups if it's confusing to you to do that. These books are written on different levels. And sometimes a consensus can form in A Course in Miracles, but all that's happened is a particular level has been agreed upon. And it may not be the level that you need to read the books on. Don't try to figure out whether your level is higher or lower. There is no organization associated with A Course in Miracles. Some people find the kind of friendship and support that course groups offer extremely helpful and encouraging. But course groups have nothing to do with A Course in Miracles. And so use the same criterion that you use for all things. Decide in peace. But don't get yourself stirred up over this. This is a gentle, gentle path. It's an easy path. It's full of freedom and peace. Take all the time you need. You don't have to do a different lesson each day if you don't want to. Gail didn't. She took sometimes a week or two to do a lesson. You see, that's perfectly fine. It doesn't matter how long you spend. So let me conclude by saying this. Oh, we're going to have those posters. The uh, We're going to have them for sale back there. The uh, Mayor Baba poster. Uh... Don't worry, be happy. And uh, we've, we found out where they're being sold, and so we'll have those for you. People, that's all there is to it. There is, it's so simple to know your father and to go home. You just don't worry. You be happy. But work hard at it. 